0: Today we are wrapping up part two of Meeting Jesus and Matthew. Since uh, December, the weekend before Christmas, we started a new series where uh, we learned who is Jesus, what did he teach, and for the next two weeks after this, we're going to be wrapping up the series with what did Jesus do. We're going to be talking about his death and his resurrection, and then Easter weekend, we're going to be starting a brand new series. So with all that in mind, let me just pray for the, the Sermon for the Preaching of God's Word. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. Uh, we come before it humbly, uh, and we pray that you would speak to us, because that's really what um, preaching is all about, uh, through your words, the scriptures. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, Maybe some of you help your kids with homework, uh, and uh, you know, whether it's math, uh, algebra, English problems, whatever it is, uh, you probably take some time to do that with them. Uh, and if you've ever thought, mm, maybe I should ask Jonathan for help, you'd be wrong. should not talk to me uh, if you are wanting to get a math problem solved or if you want me to help your kids in that way because I'm simply not talented at it. It's not my gifting. Now, I know I don't look like a math genius, uh, but in college, I did actually take calculus and statistics. Uh, so I wanted to uh, uh, get into the business college, and in order to get into that college, you had to take business calc, which is like the easiest version of calc, and you had to take statistics. And I really, really wanted to do well in my classes. I wanted to get A grades. And so I did what any uh, good student would do. I sat up front in like the first or second row. I asked questions during class, I asked questions after class, I went to office hours, I was that guy, uh, if you've been in college recently. In fact, I was so successful in my pursuit of kind of cozying up to my calculus teacher that one day, in the middle of class, there's about about 100 students, it was a packed auditorium, uh, with no warning, she stopped the class and she turned to me and said, do you understand Jonathan. And that's when I went like this. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I just nodded. I wasn't even listening when she asked me. Uh, <laughs> but I just kind of nodded my head. After that, I had students coming up to me and saying, uh, and say to me, I'm in your calculus class. So I was like, oh, well, good, good, good to meet you. Now, I listened very hard. I got good grades in both those classes, if you're wondering. I listened very hard. I did everything that I should have done uh, kind of during this series. And then afterwards, I I left, and I forgot. I forgot everything. If you were to ask me to do uh, derivatives today, I would not be able to do them. Uh, If you asked me to graph a bell curve, I could if you gave me a piece of paper. But I couldn't do it any other way with uh, any sort of uh, equation. See, I I was interested in learning, but then when I finished the class, I didn't take what I had learned, and I didn't put it into practice in my own life. I didn't take it home and say, all right, now I'm going to do stats, and I'm going to do calculus on my own to make sure that it sticks. And then I didn't get into a job that required those things either. And so although I spent many, many hours slaving over homework, really the only good thing I got out of it was the grade. I, didn't, I wasn't changed. And as we approach the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we have been learning a lot of good things. We've been learning a lot of useful things. All the different teachings of Jesus on anger, on uh, judgmentalism, on uh, giving of our money, on all sorts of different things. And the question that Jesus is posing to us today is really the same question. Are you going to take everything you learned and are you going to put it into practice in your own life, or are you simply going to hear it and cast it out? Jesus tells us the story of two men, a wise man and a foolish man, each building their house upon a sand in a sandy area. One doing it upon a foundation, and the other not. And he compares us to them. Are we willing to listen and obey? Because that's like the person who builds on a foundation. Or are we just going to hear and go and do our own thing and forget? So he would call that the foolish person. Now Jesus starts by talking about the wise man. The wise man is really a true disciple of Jesus. We define a disciple of Jesus here at Cornerstone as simply a follower of Jesus. His, his 12 disciples followed him around. And a true follower of Jesus uh, hears Jesus and Jesus obeys him we see this in Matthew 7 24 through 25 says therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock the rain came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock now, our passage begins with a therefore. So if you look at the very first word in verse 24, it's a therefore. So uh, kind of the, the question you, you always ask when you see a therefore is, what, why is it there? What's it there for? Uh, and so what Jesus did is he's putting this here. If you've recently written a college paper or um, maybe just a a review of something, when you get towards the end, you do an in-conclusion, and then you write your paragraph or an in-summary, and you kind of write your thoughts down again. And Jesus is just doing the exact same thing. He's saying, in-conclusion, therefore, in-summary... Are you going to put my words into action? And so this, therefore, doesn't just refer to a couple verses in front of it. it. It refers to all of the Sermon on the Mount. So starting in chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through the end of 7, Jesus is saying, are you going to put all of my words, the entire Sermon on the Mount, into practice in your own life? It's a pretty big Therefore. So I want us to go back, and you can flip along in your Bibles if you want, to flip back to starting in chapter 5 and kind of review the texts we went over. And we did skip a few, and if you're new this week, bear with us because we're going to start a new series soon, but you might learn something as we review through these. So starting with the Beatitudes in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we went through the Beatitudes and the following texts. We learned about the importance of grace And how the Sermon on the Mount really starts with a message of grace, that God does uh, wonderful things for those who are poor in spirit, for those who are peacemakers. He gives them the kingdom of heaven. They are his children, and it's God who does that. It's like a gift that God gives to people. The status, he comes to them and just says, if you're willing to humble yourself, I give you this gift of grace. My first point in verses 1 through 12 was that followers of Jesus are surprised by grace. And then followers of Jesus are seasoned with grace. Talks about the salt and being a, a kind of a, a seasoning to the world. And followers of Jesus shine out grace. This means that as we receive grace, uh, we reflect it into the world, we share it. And then finally, followers of Jesus are successful because of grace. See, we become followers of Jesus because of grace. Jesus expects us to live in grace, and then Jesus expects us to go out and share that message of grace with others, all the while knowing that we will be successful because of grace. That's already a pretty hefty call. That's already a pretty big practice that Jesus is saying to do in our lives. But it doesn't stop there. Because next, in chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, Jesus teaches his followers not to harbor hate in their hearts. Maybe you're someone who has struggled with hate or bitterness or anger or maybe even these feelings of murder in your own heart. Well, according to one standard of Jesus' day, it was only bad if you really acted on those feelings. That was kind of the religious thought of the day. As long as you don't do anything bad, it's okay. But Jesus says, no, God's standards are much different. See, God says that in our hearts, when we commit those things, when we think those things, we actually do commit murder with our thoughts, with our words, and with our deeds. And through Jesus, we are forgiven, and he expects us to go and let that penetrate our whole lives and extend that grace to others, to forgive, to not harbor hate and anger. That's a tough message, especially when we've had people really hurt us, and they deserve to be murdered. They deserve to be, uh, have anger against them. But Jesus expects his followers to forgive, to move on. Next, in verses 27 through 37, uh, Anthony led us through uh, Jesus as he confronted our relational sins. So how we interact with other people, specifically in, in, in the context of like marriage. So Jesus says it's a sin to lust, to lie, and to break promises. That all these things are wrong. To do these in God's eyes, so to lust in our heart, uh, to lie, uh, to break promises in God's eyes are as wrong as adultery, are as wrong as divorce. And are as wrong as breaking a promise with God himself. Whew. But the good news is, the gospel news is that Jesus forgives us. And he is transforming us from covenant breakers into what we like to call covenant keepers. And he's doing it all through Jesus Christ. But he, he expects us to no longer live in lust. No longer live as if we can lie. No longer break our promises with those around us. This is a steep calling for followers of Jesus. After this, in verses 38 through 48 of chapter 5, we talked about that uh, famous passage, an eye for an eye and loving our enemies. This goes along with kind of the hate passage. The world insists that when you and I are mistreated, when we're wronged, We are to stand up for our rights. That's what culture says. But Jesus preaches a much different message. He insists that we return good for evil. He insists that we love our enemies instead of hating them. See, Jesus expects Christians to act differently, to act unnaturally because of grace, because grace isn't normal, and so Christians aren't supposed to be either. That's another steep, steep calling. Now, it really got interesting. If you weren't engaged the previous weeks, it got interesting when Jesus started talking about your money because that was the next passage, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 and 19 through 24. We talked about the Lord's Prayer in the fall, so we didn't go back over that. Uh, But Jesus kind of gives a steep calling to how we use our finances. He expects that followers of Jesus will give to the poor, to the needy, To God's mission, to the church, I talked about the difference between a tithe and an offering. A tithe is 10% of your income, and an offering is anything you give past that. And Jesus, in the teachings of the New Testament, calls us to this, to give 10% of our income to him. That is incredibly challenging. And he expects us not only to give him our money, but to give him our time as well to serve him with our hours, which are far more precious than uh, our dollar bills. Ultimately, he says, invest everything you have, who you are, your money, your time in eternity. Invest everything in Jesus. Next, we went to one of the hardest commandments I think Jesus gives in verses 25 through 34 of chapter 6. Jesus says, do not worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be overcome with fear. Jesus urges us to let our fears go, our false expectations appearing real, and cling to him. Because he has overcome all of our fears through his death and through his resurrection. Cling to him. More recently, we learned how followers of Jesus aren't supposed to judge others unfairly. So this is chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. He gave the, kind of the, the story of, uh, of having a log, a giant beam in your own eye and approaching people that have only tiny specks of sawdust in their eye and saying, you need to get rid of your small issue in your life. I'm going to ignore the big sin, the big issue in my own life. Now, that's not fair, that we hide sin in our blind spots, that we have a way of not examining our own lives first. And Jesus says, examine your own life. Don't judge others as if you're God. Examine your own heart. And one of the ways we do that is as we have the Christian community, those our brothers and sisters in Christ come to us and say, here's a way that you can uh, repent and turn to Christ, asking them to do that. Ultimately, the message was speaking truth graciously Honestly and thoughtfully, because that is what Jesus did for us, speaking the truth, but also speaking the gospel message. And then last week, finally, in verses 13 through 23, uh, we discovered the difference between a true follower of Jesus and a fake follower of Jesus. And that was an interesting week because we, we talked about entering through the narrow gates and how true followers of Jesus who put their faith in him will be tried and tested by the world that it's, it's not normal, it's different. They also bear fruit in their own lives, bear fruit of repentance, of publicly confessing Jesus, of obeying his teaching, and then they know Jesus relationally as well. See, a true follower of Jesus just does, doesn't just do and say the right things. A true follower knows Jesus and is known by Jesus, experiences what we call heart intimacy with Christ. That's how deep a true follower knows Jesus and is known by him. Now this is a, kind of a big, a big passage where it confronts us and it challenges us with a lot of things. And none of us in our own effort and our own power can live up to any of these things. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. But Jesus does say if you trust him and you try to obey him in these things, if you try to live this way, you will be like a man who built his house on a solid foundation, on a rock. You you will be like a man who built a flood-proof house. Now, several summers ago, uh, my brother, uh, well, maybe you remember the fires in Colorado, the wildfires. Uh, Well, several summers ago, uh, my brother, he was living in Lyons, and uh, that was in the general vicinity of these burnt-out areas. And then it flooded. And so you had all these hills that had the undergr- under, kind of the undergrowth, the vegetation that was burnt away, and then the water coming down. And that's a combination for flooding, for flash floods, for rising waters. And so my brother and his wife, they were in a flood zone. And they actually had to leave their apartment, uh, when uh, their, little, their little house, when there was like ankle-deep water. It was terrifying. They got in their truck and they drove away. And their house, uh, their little apartment was caked in like, uh, I don't know, it was like a foot of mud, a couple feet of mud. They lost a lot of things. And uh, if you watched the news, CNN at that time, there was actually a picture of their other car flipped upside down in the river uh, because the flood had just come along and taken the car. (laughs) I bet they wished that they had been in a different apartment at that time. Now, this is similar to the type of flooding Jesus is describing in this passage. Now, remember, he's on a dry hill, probably a very arid hill. He's preaching on a hill outside the Sea of Galilee. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's near Galilee. And he's probably overlooking the sea at this time. And at the Sea of Galilee, there's was, there was little towns here and there. Uh, and along, along the edge, along the rim, there was a whole bunch of sand. And in the summer, this sand would get very hard, it would bake, and it was as if you could build on it. But if you just built on the sand itself, you'd probably be in for trouble. Because in the winter months, when the rains would come, it would go and it would wash things away. It could produce, those dry mountains could produce flash flooding, other sorts of flooding. And this is why if we look at the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 48, Jesus kind of gives a different prescription than we see in this passage, but it's, it, he says this. He says, they are like a man, he's talking about the wise man, who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. So the solution to building near the Sea of Galilee uh, was to make sure that you dug through the sand or the dirt wherever you were until you got to solid rock, and then you would build your home on that. So that so that when those floods came, you wouldn't be take, taken away, you wouldn't be swept away. See, Jesus is saying, putting our beliefs into action, putting those things we believe into action is hard. It's hard work digging through sand, digging through life, trying to obey Jesus. And whenever you drive around really nice neighborhoods, maybe some of you have recently moved to Westford and you drove through the neighborhood and you admired some of the beautiful houses, uh, you never go by the houses and say, wow, I really admire that foundation. That is just a beautiful foundation. You always look at the house. Because that's kind of what's pretty. See, it's not, it's not well known when you work out judgmentalism in your own heart. It's not a thing that other people see when you struggle with hate inside your own mind or bitterness. And you go through the long kind of digging hours of rooting out that bitterness in giving it to christ no one sees that but that's what jesus is saying he's saying it's like you're digging a foundation a sturdy foundation as you forgive as you move on it's hard to do things like write checks to give money people don't see that unless i guess you wave your check around which we don't do here It's hard to give a portion of our income to God. Uh, People don't see that. They don't look at it and say, ooh, ah, how impressive is that? But Jesus sees it. God sees it. And he says, ah, you're building a good foundation because you're putting my words into practice. You're putting the words of Jesus into action. See, Jesus promises that when we obey him, hardships will come. You don't Just because we give or not judge others unfairly, that doesn't mean bad things won't happen to us. But the difference is we might be shaken, but we won't be shaken to the core. Because we will know Jesus. We will have uh, worked through these things prior to the hardships. So another way of saying this is when you've experienced grace and you've practiced giving that grace to others, when someone does come and hurt you at a, at a higher level, You'll be better able, you'll be better prepared to pass along that grace because you will have practice doing it at a lower level. How about uh, if you've kind of worked on your temper, you have a problem with anger and loving your enemies? Well, if you work on that in small situations and those things that don't really matter as much, when a serious issue comes along and you have a real reason to be mad, you'll be able to hold your temper and your judgmental attitude because. You will have been practicing all along. How about keeping our promises in our marriages, in our relationships? Jesus is saying that if you, if you work at that, if you work at rooting lust out of your heart, out of, work at rooting lies out of your relationship, honestly look at what you have, you'll have a stronger relationship, a stronger marriage because of it. And as hard times come, when life emergencies kind of hit you in the face, you will be able to stand because you'll have practice doing that at a lower level. See, a true follower of Jesus hears Jesus and obeys him, and that proves fruitful, that proves rewarding in our own life. So how about the other man? Jesus starts with the wise man. He kind of starts with the nice, and then he goes to the negative. And so we're going to do the same thing as we look at the pretend follower of Jesus. See, a pretend follower of Jesus looks a lot like a true follower. 26 and 27 say this, "...but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." A pretend Christian, a pretend follower of Jesus, actually looks a lot like a real follower of Jesus, a real Christian. The image Jesus is giving us here is of uh, two different people. They're building on the same beach. And although one may spend more time on the foundation, the other one builds their house much quicker and can relax, uh, by the end of the building period, by the end of the uh, the, the, the summer, they have two houses, and they look a lot alike. They're two people ...who live uh, maybe the same way. Maybe they go to the same church. Maybe they're friends. Maybe they're in the same family. Maybe they're in the same small group. And they come and they serve on the same teams. But there's something different different between the two of them. See, one has truly encountered Jesus... ...and is seeking to, to live out his or her whole life in honor of Christ while the other one is going through the motions because they want to look as if they have it all together spiritually. See, you can go through and kind of try to do some of these things from the Sermon on the Mount outwardly and look really good. You can pretend to not judge others, but truthfully, honestly, it'll come out at some point. If you harbor judgment and resentment in your heart over and over and over again, even if on the outward side you say, oh, it's okay, one day, when the floods come, when life circumstances really hurt you, those things will also come flooding out of you, and your, your whole world will collapse. See, Jesus gives us an example of pushing sand around, and that it might prove useful in the short run, but in the long term, it's not very useful. It won't last Monica and I were up at uh, Newburyport, uh, there's, a, there's a really beautiful beach outside of Newburyport, we parked and we were walking along the beach and there were bulldozers that were uh, kind of pushing large mounds of sand up against the hill. So why were they doing this? It was because there was a long row of costly, expensive houses that were built right on the beachfront. And if they didn't push that sand up against those houses, those houses would one day soon collapse. And did you know, actually, little-known fact, that the Cape, Cape Cod, where we all enjoy visiting and and going, uh, in about 2,000 years, it won't be there. It'll just be a series of shoals, of uh, little islands here and there. See, if we take a long-term perspective on obeying Jesus, on truly knowing him and trusting him with our lives and our actions, we're going to build something that will last beyond 2,000 years. It'll last for an eternity. But if we don't, if we just go through the motions and kind of appear to be religious and spiritual and we come to church and we sit here every week and we listen, and we nod, but then we don't obey, that's as useless as pushing sand around on a beach. It'll get you nowhere spiritually. There are worse consequences than that, too. Not only in this life will minor events, big events, take you down, but one day Jesus is promising that a final judgment will come. And no one will be able to escape that judgment. Now, when you read our passage, it talked about uh, rain and floods and wind. And I think Jesus is kind of using some imagery that should remind us back to a uh, kind of a a universal judgment that took place in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 7, there was Noah's flood. And this is a verse from Genesis chapter 7. And it's talking about this judgment. So in the, year, the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of heaven were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. These verses are an awful lot alike. If you look at Matthew and then you look at Genesis. See, Jesus is saying if you don't obey his words and believe him and believe in him, one day he will come again and he will judge the whole world in a way that is even greater than the judgment the people of Noah's time experienced. He said, I will never again flood the whole world with water, but I'll do it with fire. See, saying you believe in Jesus but not obeying him leads to destruction. It leads to fire. It leads to hell. Disobeying Jesus will lead to hardships in this life and also in the next. And if you're a true follower of Jesus and you're listening to this message, I hope that you're actually encouraged. Uh, I, I don't want you to be discouraged because maybe you're going through a period in your life where you say, Wow, I don't look like I have it all together. I don't feel like I have it all together. I don't pray enough. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't serve enough. But I do love Jesus, and I am seeking to put his practices, his teachings into my life, into practice in my own life, and the way I go about my week. Well, have hope, because we can't see our neighbor's foundation, we can look at other people and say, wow, they are incredibly talented with their, their gifts. They, they can play you know, an instrument really well. They can uh, do other things. They seem to have all the answers t- to Bible trivia, and they can pray really long. Well, that's just the outside. <laughs> we can't judge the inside. Only Jesus can do that, and you can deal with your foundation. And digging deep, trusting God with your own life. Now, the, digger we de- the, de- the deeper we dig, the more we get to know Jesus. Because the more experience we have trusting him and seeing the fruit of that trust bear out in our own lives. See, ultimately, we're digging to Christ. See, we dig down deep to Christ, our cornerstone. Maybe some of you know what a cornerstone is. It's the most important stone in a foundation. It's the, the, maybe the biggest stone. It straightened and it levels the whole foundation that you build upon. And if we look later in Matthew, uh, this passage talks about a foundation. Jesus really calls himself, quoting scripture, saying that he is the foundation. Matthew 21, 42 says this. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, Jesus is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone upon which all of our lives, all of Christianity rests. Because long before we ever seek to listen to the teachings of Jesus and obey him, Christ obeyed his own teachings and listened to God on our behalf. See, Jesus is like that wise man who dug through kind of the the shaky ground of the religious views at his time where people uh, were giving all sorts of false teachings. And he says, no, I'm going to teach God's way. God's way, God's standards are much higher, but I'm going to obey them all completely. And then if you put your faith in me, if you trust in me, the good news is that you get my record. You get my foundation. I become the foundation upon which you will build your life. And ultimately, your salvation doesn't rest upon how well you perform, how well you obey me. Your salvation rests entirely on me, the rock who will not be shaken, who will not be moved. Take comfort in that when you don't obey, when you do disobey in sin. Still confess But take comfort that Christ is your cornerstone and he isn't moved by your sins. Because he paid for them all. He paid for them on the cross. Our passage uh, sort of ends hinting at this in verses 28 through 29. He talks about his words and how they're authoritative. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Teachers, the teachers of Jesus' day were the Pharisees, the scribes, kind of the religious elites. And they relied not on God's word, not on the Bible, but on tradition. See, they said that if you trusted their words, well, you would do okay. And the temptation that we all go through in this life is to do the same thing, but we don't have. Necessarily like religious elites telling us how to live our lives. We have media, we have culture, we have uh, our friends, we have our relationships, and they say uh, sometimes live your life in a way that doesn't honor God. So the question is are you going to live the way culture says? Judging others, putting yourself first, living in a sexually immoral way? Are you going to trust the words of Jesus? Jesus' words have been around for well over these 2,000 years, and his words have proved reliable for every single one of them. He is completely trustworthy. He is completely true. Dig down deep to Christ or our cornerstone. We can do this kind of three ways, three simple ways. Uh, they're not uh, kind of breathtaking ways, but they're, they're, they're how we dig. They're how we put our faith in Jesus and how we trust him. First, we confess our sins to Jesus. You can't start digging through the sand uh, to Jesus unless you are willing to kind of confess, to say, Lord, I'm sorry for all the ways that I failed the Sermon on the Mount. See, there's no, none of us can go through the Sermon on the Mount and do it perfectly. I'm sorry Lord for how I judge others for how I am overwhelmed with anxiety I'm sorry Lord for the ways that I lie I'm sorry Lord for the ways that I lust in my heart God says I forgive you that's what the cross is about Jesus forgiving us so we confess our sins to Jesus and second we believe and trust in Jesus see we believe Jesus can save us we believe he can forgive us and we we trust that he will transform us Throughout the course of our lives, although in this moment, maybe you struggle with anxieties, have hope, and and hold on. Because in 20 years, in 10 years, as Jesus has been able to work on your heart, I'm confident that he will transform you. This is what the gospel is. It's It's a transformative thing. Jesus transforms our whole lives. And third, we obey the teachings of Jesus. We put the Sermon on the Mount into action. We begin to try to succeed at the Sermon on the Mount. We are aided by God himself. Jesus taught us, but he didn't leave us here to to flounder around. He sends the Holy Spirit to empower us, to equip us, to help us obey. And so we rely on the Holy Spirit. We rely on brothers and sisters in Christ to say, hey, can you help me with this area in my life that I'm struggling with? And we seek to obey. Dig down deep to Christ, our cornerstone. I grew up in uh, Colorado, and so uh, we didn't have to really worry about building our houses on beachfront property. We didn't have to worry too much about sand. Uh, we, We built more on dirt, on rocks, a lot of rocks. But you still had to lay a foundation, now, at our house, uh, if you were to go out the back door, uh, there was a small cement, cement patio that was about 12 feet long, 4 feet wide, and it's like deepest portion, and maybe 2 feet when you stepped out of the door. Uh, and it was, it was kind of like an extension of the foundation. I don't know if it was laid at the same time, uh, but you could get that impression because it was cement. And if you looked closely At this cement foundation, you would see four sets of small handprints. I actually brought a picture to show you guys today. (laughs) Yeah. That's where my four brothers and I, when we were just little redheaded boys, uh, pressed our hands into the foundation, and then we carved our initials there. See, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is inviting us to come, come and press your life into Him. Press your life into Jesus by trusting Him, by obeying Him with everything you have. This is still there. My dad took this picture this morning. Our foundation, our, our, our Jesus, he, he is the everlasting cornerstone. Your name is engraved in Him forever. It will never go away. Dig down deep to Christ, our cornerstone. Let's pray. Father, help us to receive all that you have given us. You've given us so much, so much grace. And you call on us to live by a higher standard. You call us to hear your words and then also to put your words into practice in our own lives. And we can't do it without you, God. We look forward to the reward, the reward of trusting you with our lives, eternity spent with you, our cornerstone. Help us put these things into action. In Jesus' name, amen.